Welcome again uh, to Midtown 12 South. It is uh, good to be with you in God's house. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're very glad that you're here. Certainly uh, welcome uh, your questions. If you're checking out the, the way of Jesus, if you're checking out uh, his church, uh, we would love to get to know you, love to be known by you, uh, and would love to buy you coffee and see how we can engage with you. I promise you we will not answer all of your questions, and especially even after the text this morning, you will probably have questions um, that I won't promise to answer, but we can promise to try to uh, explore who this Jesus of the Bible is together. Uh, and so I hope that you find uh, a home here with us. Um, we have been studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, seeing how the world came to be, seeing what went wrong, and then seeing the God who promises to make it right. Last week, we saw the flood, the deluge, as it's been called, uh, being poured out on mankind, God's righteous, just wrath against sin and what sin had done to his world. His precious creation was poured out, and the whole world is decimated, except one family. So today, after the flood, we pick up with that family and see how life continues for them after the flood, kind of after the chaos. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 8. We're going to read the end of Genesis chapter 8, and we're going to be reading a little bit of that, and then a selection from Genesis chapter 9, where the covenant promise of God is given uh, to Noah and the world. So Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 18, this is life after the flood, it says, So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an, an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And skipping down to verse eight. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's the word of the Lord, amen. Okay, so life after the ark. I know that it's some of these biblical accounts. If you've grown up hearing these stories or you're familiar somewhat with these stories, it's kind of hard to, they kind of feel like fairy tales. They feel like, did this really happen? Is this real? 
It's really hard to like take ourselves and our imaginations to this scene, which would have been a very intense scene. This is not the children's Bible version of this story that Noah and his family have just watched the entire world be destroyed and now the waters recede and they wash up on dry ground, Mount Ararat, and they walk off of the ark and they find in, them, in, in their world now the desolation that was, they are now the, the sole inhabitants of their world. Noah gets off the ark and the first thing he does is he offers a sacrifice. I wish we could spend a lot of time on this because I think it's fascinating. But for Noah to offer a sacrifice when he, he builds an altar, the first thing he does when he gets on dry ground is he offers a sacrifice to the Lord, which means he's grateful. The sign of someone offering a sacrifice with their heart to the Lord is a sign of humble gratitude, which means Noah gets off the ark and he's not full of entitled outrage. How dare you? How dare you do this to me? And who do you think you are, God of the universe, to bring a flood to the, to the world? The one who actually lived through the flood, Noah himself and his family, he thought the flood was just because with humble gratitude, he's coming to the Lord and saying, I'm so grateful that we're alive because I saw what happened to everybody else. He offers an offering of thanksgiving and he's saying to the Lord, I can't believe we made it out alive. We should have been swept up in the waters too, but you saved us. We are grateful. Noah is not angry. He's grateful. That's a whole other sermon. But we should at least be clued into the fact that the way we view the flood, how we view the flood, where does God get off? And who does he think he is? This violent God of the Old Testament. How, how just is this God if he could just do this? That's maybe us in 2023 with our like postmodern, post-enlightenment minds reading back into something. And the guy that actually lived through it didn't see it that way. He actually had gratitude after the flood. He was going, Lord, you had every right to do this. And yet you saved us. We are thankful. It's another sermon. So after that sacrifice, though, is kind of where I want to pick up our imaginations and how Noah would have been doing. As the Lord is receiving the sacrifice from the Lord, it's a pleasing aroma. The Lord gives a state of the union, a state of the world. How is the world doing in the Lord's eyes after the flood? Verse 21, throw this up there, Allie. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That word youth right there is the same word for like newborn childbirth. So really what he's saying is the intention of man's heart is evil from the time they're born. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. After the flood, after the deluge, the Lord says something shocking to us. He says the same line that he says to us before the flood about the state of man's heart. For the intention of man's heart is evil. Wait, wait, wait. I thought the flood was supposed to be a fresh start. I thought the flood was supposed to wipe away all the evil so that we could then start again and all could be made well again. I thought that the flood was supposed to change the state of man's heart. Not so. Things are still bad. Man's heart is still evil. The flood didn't cure the heart. Life after the flood is still a mess. Life after the flood is still a wreck. It's still bad. In fact, after our passage, if you read on in Genesis chapter nine, Noah is gonna have a drunken episode. Noah plants a vineyard. He grows a vineyard. He makes some wine. Noah gets plastered in his vineyard and then he drunkenly falls asleep in his tent and his kids, one of his kids, it's mysterious because the Hebrew doesn't really make a lot of sense, but something happens. One of his sons does something wildly sexually inappropriate to his father while his father's drunk. We're like, 
We're one season after the flood and it's, it's not pretty still. Some commentators have noted that Noah and his family's continued sin after the flood should require more just punishment than the flood itself. Like the post-flood world should require more punishment than the pre-flood world because Noah has seen what God does to sin. Noah has seen, hey, when it gets this bad, this is what God intends to do and he is just in doing it. Mankind has seen what God's justice means for them and yet Noah and his family is still in rebellion against him. It's bad, it's a wreck, it's not good. The state of the world was not fixed by the flood. And then, even though it's a mess, this is crazy, God still entrusts his mission in the world to these sinful people. Chapter nine, verse one. This, this is insane. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you've been with us and tracking along, that's a direct quote. That's exactly what God told Adam and Eve in the garden to do. That was the original intent, the original mandate, the original task for mankind. Be fruitful and and fill the earth. Take dominion, nourish the world, cultivate and keep it. Bring life wherever you go. Spread God's goodness across the world. Spread God's beauty across the world. Join with God in making this place a beautiful world to live in. Noah and his sons are given the same exact task. So the reader should be shocked at this point. How in the world are these evil from youth, sinful people supposed to accomplish the task and the mandate to spread God's goodness across the world? How are they supposed to do that? Mankind's already had a shot at it. Didn't go great. It gets real bad real fast. Cain and Abel, and then the, the, every intention of man's heart is only evil all the time. The world is full of violence, pre-flood. Flood happens, still a wreck. And God says, let me bless you and give you the same task. I'm actually entrusting my mission to mend the world. I'm entrusting you with that. So how in the world do you think Noah's doing right now? Wait, wait, wait. Mankind wrecked this world. It's our fault. You wipe the world out. We get off the ark. It's still bad. Every intention of man's heart is still evil. And you want to entrust us with this same mandate? How are we supposed to do that? Well, Noah's given something. Noah's given something that will carry him and carry his family and carry every generation after his family. He's given something that will carry them in this very dense paragraph of chapter nine. This is verses eight through 17. We're not gonna reread all of it. But that section, Noah and his family are given a covenant and they're given a sign for the covenant. And the covenant and the covenant sign will carry Noah and his family as they seek to fill the world with God's goodness again. The word covenant occurs seven times in these nine verses, which is a lot. The repetition of a Hebrew text is the way that a Hebrew text makes a point. Covenant is all over this text. It's the first time in the Bible that the word covenant appears. And essentially, here's what a covenant is. A covenant is a permanent agreement initiated by God that establishes the nature of the relationship with him and his people. A covenant is a permanent agreement initiated by God that establishes the nature of the relationship with his people. Many more covenants are to come in scripture, but this is the first time we see the word in scripture. And the covenant here that God makes, the agreement that God makes, is that he will never destroy the earth again. 
That's the agreement that establishes the relationship. And the paragraph where we read about the covenant, where it happens seven times in nine verses, is a little repetitive. It keeps kind of saying the same phrases, so it's a little hard for the reader to extract what is, what is God saying in this highly dense, highly repetitive paragraph about the covenant. So three things I wanna pull from that paragraph. Three things that are explicitly said to Noah. Three places, three ways that the Lord applies his covenant and his, the sign of his covenant to Noah. As Noah faces the sin-stained world that he has now been called to walk in and rebuild, he's gonna need these three things from the covenant. The covenant and the sign of the covenant speak to these three places. They speak to Noah's present, they speak to Noah's future, and they speak to Noah's forever. The present, the future, and the forever. So first, how does the covenant and the sign speak to Noah's and our present tense? Look with me again at verse 13. God says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I have set my bow in the cloud. Some translations, if you read the NIV, uh, some translations like the NIV say, I have set my rainbow in the cloud, which is certainly what God is talking about. It's just, that's not the word that is used in the original language of the Old Testament. The word rainbow didn't exist. Do you know what the word rainbow is? It's just the Hebrew word for bow, as in bow and arrow, as in war bow. It's the Hebrew word keshet, the Hebrew word keshet appears almost 70 other times in the Old Testament. And every other time it's used in the Old Testament is talking about someone's war bow. And most of the time that that word is used, it applies to the Lord who is personified as having a bow. And guess what God's bow is always used for? His justice and his wrath. To wipe out his enemies, to pay back those who have sinned against God's people, for those that have taken advantage of the poor and the marginalized. God gets out his bow and he pursues his foes and his enemies and he destroys them with the arrows of his wrath. God brings justice to the world with the bow of his wrath. And here's what the Lord just told Noah and just told you I'm setting my bow of wrath aside. I'm setting it aside and you need to know, Noah, that even with all the evil in the world and all the evil in you, my disposition towards the world now will not be one of wrath, but one of mercy because I'm setting my war bow aside. I have set my bow in the cloud. I'm taking it and I'm putting it over here. So for Noah, who knows what the Lord has just said about the human heart, that every intention of man's heart is evil from their birth, for Noah, who knows what God's just wrath can do to the world, right? He just lived through a flood. Noah was just given a covenant for his present tense moment. Noah, right now, my disposition towards you, Noah, is that as God deals with Noah, as he deals with Noah and his descendants, God's disposition towards his people in the present tense will not be a disposition of anger and wrath, but will be a disposition of mercy and compassion. Noah, I'm setting my bow aside. And then it gets better. Not only is the Lord setting his war bow aside, but if you've ever seen a rainbow, and I don't know, do we have any archers in the room? <laughs> Didn't think so. But if you, if you know which way a bow points when it's shooting, which way is the bow of God's wrath pointing now? It's pointed up. 
God's bow of righteous wrath isn't pointed at the world. It's pointed at heaven. Here's what he's saying to Noah. The next time this arrow of God's wrath is flung, it will fire on God himself and not on man. Whoa. Now for a Jew to read this, they may believe that. They may go, whoa, that's incredible. But how in the world is that possible? How could God ever do that? How could God fire the arrow of his wrath on himself? And this is how the Christian is able to understand the Old Testament in some ways far better than even some Jews can. Because only in Jesus do we see how this makes any sense. Jesus would be the one who took the arrow of God's wrath on himself. Jesus being fully God, God incarnate, would be the one that literally, do you know how Jesus died? Yes, he died by crucifixion. Do you know what actually kills those who were crucified? Suffocation. Jesus drowned. He gasped for air. He gasped for air under the weight of God's righteous judgment. Jesus would be the one who took the arrow of God's just wrath. And then in, in, the, in the flood story, you have God destroying the whole world but saving one man and his family. In the Jesus story, you have God destroying one man to save the whole world. That Jesus actually is the ultimate Noah saying, yes, Noah, you lived through the arrow of God's wrath last time. I'm telling you this time, the next time God's righteous arrow is flung, it will fall on God himself. The arrow is pointed up. Now, Noah couldn't see Jesus in this moment, but here's what Noah was given in the present that we now have a more complete picture of. Noah could see a God who was giving him the gift of showing him that the bow of God's wrath was now being set aside and pointed up and that the Lord's disposition towards Noah and his family was not wrath, but mercy. It's a gift for someone who's been called to repopulate and refill the earth, right? I need to know that even though there's evil in my heart, your disposition towards me is full of mercy and compassion, not full of wrath. But then the Lord tells Noah not just how the rainbow and the bow will apply to his present tense steps as he leaves that place. The Lord tells him how the rainbow and the covenant will protect Noah in his future. Look with me again at verse 14 and 15. Lord says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. It's easy to breeze over this. But again, go to, go to this place with me, like in the Middle East, Noah, Mount Ararat, wherever it is, somewhere over there. He, he's leaving the ark, offers this sacrifice. Lord accepts it. Lord tells him man's heart is evil calls him to refill this desolate world now, puts a rainbow in the cloud and then, or puts a rainbow in the sky. And then he tells Noah this, hey, as you walk from this place in your future days and in your future months, in your future years, Noah, there's gonna be days when I bring clouds to you. Okay, go to this place in your mind for Noah. What do you think this would be like for Noah the next time he saw rain clouds? What happened to Noah and Noah's whole world the last time he saw rain clouds? Which, by the way, was the first time rain clouds had ever existed. So the first time Noah sees rain clouds, it destroys the world. What do you think Noah would be thinking or feeling when he saw rain clouds again? Triggered much? 
trauma much? Like, what do you think is going through this man's brain when he sees rain clouds this next time in the future? Maybe every time he sees rain clouds in the future. Does your trauma ever get triggered? Did the clouds of your life ever remind you of past clouds? Do you know what it means to be triggered? Do you know, like when you experience the pain of a breakup that rips your heart out, it's very possible that that could not just rip the scab off of that relationship, it could remind you of the dad that left you too. Do you know that when life gets chaotic and you don't know what you're supposed to do for your next job, it could remind you of life when life was chaotic in your family of origin home and you didn't ever know where the next meal was coming from anyway. And now when you can't decide on a job, why is it that I'm freaking out so much? It's because you didn't even know when the next meal was going to come from. And so now your job stress is actually triggering your childhood stress. Or how about if you've ever walked through death and loss, if there's ever death and loss in your community, what do you think that reminds you of? This is what triggering is. It's a brain wiring. It's a survival response to previous pain, grief, and loss. And what happens to us when things come along and literally rip off those scabs and remind us of our previous pain and loss, we get triggered. When we see clouds roll in and we've seen these clouds before and last time we saw these clouds, these clouds devastated us. Do you know what we do when we get triggered? We freak out. And some of that, this doesn't remove all of our agency, some of that you literally don't even have a choice with. Like your, your, your brain is going into fight or flight or survival mode. It is trying to tell you, this is how you have to survive now. What do we do when we see clouds that we've seen before? In Mark chapter four, New Testament with Jesus, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee in a literal storm. Clouds literally roll in. They had actual clouds rolling in and they are terrified. They've seen clouds before. They know what clouds mean for them and their friends. They know on this Sea of Galilee, which is very tumultuous, what happens. They're being triggered and Jesus is asleep on the stern of the boat and they go and they wake Jesus up. And you know what they say to him? Don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? It's what we do too. When storms roll in, when clouds roll in and we are triggered, the most instinctual place in us goes straight to the accusation of the Almighty. Here's what we say to him. Clearly, you don't care about me because if you cared, you wouldn't have let this happen if you did. You would have stopped this pain from coming. You would have stopped this storm from coming. If you cared, your care would look like you not letting me walk through this again. See, because I, we, all have definitions, working definitions of what our life is supposed to be like, feel like, look like. And if it doesn't look that way, guess the Lord doesn't care about me then because I'm walking around with the expectation that my life doesn't include those things. And so if you bring a storm in, if you bring clouds in, we didn't agree on that. I don't like the trigger. I don't like the reminder that there's storms here. And so if a cloud's here, I got some thoughts about the one who sent the clouds. I use my circumstances. I use my clouds. I use my storms. I use my troubles to make declarations, certainly about many people in the room. But more importantly, I will make declarations, assumptions. I will write narratives 
about the Lord himself. You don't care about me. So what we all do when we're triggered. We're terrified and we begin to write stories. And here's, here's what the Lord is doing for Noah and for us. The Lord gives the rainbow into that place. The Lord brings the sign of his covenant when clouds appear, when triggers appear, when pain rolls in, and when it's so easy to write a story about the Lord. You know what he brings? A rainbow. Now, the rainbow doesn't take away the clouds. The rainbow certainly doesn't take away the pain that the storms have caused. But it comes right alongside, it comes right after the storms have come. And here's what the rainbow is doing for Noah and for us in his future and in ours. The rainbow writes a different story for us in and after our storms than the ones we have written ourselves. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where were you? You must not care. Why aren't you here? Why didn't you stop the storm? And when we ask that question, here's what the rainbow is speaking to us. I don't know what the answer is as to what God is doing, but I know what the answer is not. I don't know why clouds come. I don't know why storms roll in, but the rainbow is the assurance that the clouds are not full of God's wrath. The Lord brings the sign of the covenant to us precisely when the clouds are trying to tell us something else. We are su- this, is, this is what Job's friends do. Well, Job, sorry about all the loss, but what have you done? Like you're suffering, Job, because you, you, God's mad at you. You're in pain because God's forgotten about you. Why don't you go try to get God's attention and prove to him that he shouldn't leave you anymore? You're downcast and despairing because you probably deserve it. Do you know the choices you've made? Do you know, do you, know you, got, you created this mess? And so God doesn't have any, God's, God's punishing you for this. You either deserve this from God or he's so left you that this is just what life is like without him. So good luck out there. And those stories that the clouds write for us, you will not be able to fend off those narratives on your own. You, you will not be able to do it. You will need a God who assures you outside of yourself that those stories aren't true. You're gonna need a sign, Noah. You're gonna need a sign, Midtown, because when clouds roll in, you're gonna write a story. And the rainbow comes to us, and when they appear, they are meant to tell us, they are meant to remind Noah and humanity in our futures that you have a God who never forgets. Rainbows are meant to remind you that you have a God who never forgets. He never forgets his promises. He never forgets his heart towards you. He never forgets his disposition towards you. And as you walk into future clouds, you're gonna need that reminder because the clouds are gonna try to prove to you the complete opposite. And then lastly, the covenant is not just, and the sign is not just a reminder for the present, what is God's present disposition towards me? But not just for a future, when clouds roll in, I need to know that this is not because of God's wrath towards me. But the covenant and the sign is also a promise for forever. 
Verse 16 says this, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This is a everlasting covenant. Do you know what the word everlasting means? It ever lasts. It lasts forever. In fact, that's just one of the phrases that I I plucked out from here, the everlasting covenant. But this passage is full of language of vast permanence. Like eternal permanence is the way this whole section is written. It's all throughout the passage. Never again, ever again, never again. All flesh, all living creatures, all generations to come. It just keeps this like almost superlative sounding language surrounds this covenant. And here's what the Lord is trying to say with all this vast permanent repetition. God has a persistent allegiance to the earth and the earth's inhabitants because God has the intention of sustaining and remaking the world one day. This is the Bible's first whisper. This is the Bible's first promise that shows us that the Lord intends with his work in the world, not merely just to save souls and then vape us out of here and burn the world to the ground. No, the Lord intends to mend the world. He intends to restore what was shattered in Eden. He intends to make it all new. And the covenant here with Noah and with the world and for us is saying to you, do you know how serious the Lord is about rebuilding the world? Do you know how serious the Lord is about his commitment to remake all of this? George Matheson was a Scottish hymn writer and pastor in the late 1800s. I went to Scotland last year with some pastors, so I'm kind of an expert. But I, uh, I did learn a little bit about him there. Um, and he was engaged to his fiancee until she learned that he was going blind and the doctor said, there's nothing we can do about it. So she told him in the weeks before their wedding that she could not go through life with a blind man and so she left him. He ended up going fully blind and in his isolation and his heartache, his dear sister decided, I will be your full-time caregiver. I will never leave your side. I will walk beside you. And it allowed him to have a very fruitful and vast ministry in Scotland. He had, he had a massive church and his sister would walk him up to the pulpit every week and he would, be able to, he would literally give his sermons blind. He wrote, people would transcribe for him. He wrote all kinds of books, all kinds of hymns. Until years later, his sister was engaged herself to be married. Who will care for him now? A blind man. And not only that, on the eve of his sister's wedding, he's being reminded, he's being triggered of his own heartache of how he was left at his altar, of how no one wanted to walk through life with him. And so on the eve of his sister's wedding, he writes this famous hymn called, O love that will not let me go. And in his grief, he cries out to the one who has loved him. And listen to this third line. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. 
I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O joy that seeketh me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. What's he doing? What's he saying? He was so gripped and grabbed by the promise of the rainbow because the promise of the rainbow spoke into his weeping and wailing and his heartache and his loneliness and his pain and his suffering and his triggering. And it told him the rainbow is what he found comfort in. Even a rainbow that he hadn't seen in years. The promise of the rainbow is what told him that there's coming a morning where there will be no more tears. There's coming a morning where there will be no more blindness. There will be no more abandoned altars. There will be no more wondering what God is doing in the storm. That day is coming. One day the Lord will wipe away all of your tears. One day the Lord will heal all of your wounds. One day he will cause rivers to dance and trees to clap their hands. And one day there will be no more fear of death in any of its forms. And every time you see a rainbow, you should believe that. You should believe not just in the promise that God fired his bow on himself. You should believe the promise that clouds don't get to write the story of your life. You should also believe in a God who is committed to remaking everything. The rainbow is God's promise of a restored creation. The rainbow is God's promise of your forever bliss. Scientifically, I'm told, that all rainbows are is light refracting off of a prism. And after a rainstorm, uh, the water droplets that are literally, literally like suspended in the atmosphere become those prisms and they act as prisms for the light to refract off of them and it perfectly creates for us, for the viewer, a rainbow to see. But technically, and the science would tell you that, I don't, I don't mean to put science in quotes, I mean like I don't really know what I'm talking about. I should be in quotes. <laughs> the preacher says, technically there is always moisture in the air, which means technically there are rainbows everywhere. We just can't always see them. And it's that the Lord only makes them so visible to us when the rain has been dense enough and when the clouds have been dark enough, then the rainbow shines in. Because that's when you need to see them. If you can't see them, it's not because they're not there. And so the next time he shows you one, would you dare to pause long enough to believe what they're trying to tell you? They're trying to tell you about your present. They're trying to tell you about your future. They're trying to tell you about your forever. That that morn will tearless be. Let's pray. Jesus, um, help us to trace the rainbow through the rain. And as we close in song now, Father, um, would you help us to see to see not just the rainbow, but to see what the rainbow is telling us. What a gift you've given us, not just in the sign of the covenant, but the covenant itself that tells us how you feel about us, 
tells us how you feel about your world. Would you guide us now as we close in song and help us to believe, dare to believe that the promise has not been in vain to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.